Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. This is Justin Ritchie with my co-host Seth Moser Katz. Hey there. Hey, so how's it going, Seth? Being a welfare queen. Oh, you know, waking up late, uh, seeing the sun already up in the sky, and saying hello there. Since the uh, American culture helps train you to find such value and life meaning in your career, are you psychologically able to handle this period of unemployment? must say that is it's definitely a mind stretch to find happiness when I'm not sitting in a cubicle 24/7 but I'm slowly learning to cope with all the free time that I have using books and other media to distract me as much as I possibly can how's your life going absolutely crazy it's been uh, an insane month on my end got back from Denver Colorado where I went to the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education conference met a lot of great people all across the continent who are working on sustainability at their institutions of higher education and basically everyone agrees that um, institutions are not the kind of place to start implementing sustainability. I saw Dr. Sylvia Earle speak. She is a, I think, Nobel Prize winning oceanographer. Regardless, she gave a talk to everyone about how depleted the oceans are and how we've used up something like 90% of all the fish since 1950. and crazy stuff like Mitsubishi the company is building massive freezer operations to freeze all the last bluefin tuna so that way they can make huge sales when bluefin tuna go extinct here in a few years so when you think of killing wildlife there's no larger quantity of wildlife that is killed other than uh, seafood because we just constantly mine the oceans for biomass and it's incredible. I think it kind of shocked a lot of people there how dire the situation was, but it was very informative. Yeah, when they do fishing in the ocean, they just take a net and just pull everything up and then everything they don't want, they just throw right back. In a, in a best case scenario, there's a lot of places that use dynamite. And they just <laughs> dynamite. When I first heard about dynamite fishing, I was like, this is a joke. You can't be serious. But no, people actually throw dynamite in the water. It blows up, and then it like knocks the fish out, so just all of them float up to the water. And then you just catch the ones you want. That sounds like a pretty easy way to go fishing. Uh, I was reading uh, The Lost City of Z by David Grand, um, and it was about the explorer Fawcett who went into the Amazon to try and find a lost civilization. And what continually shocked him when he came across the indigenous tribes was their knowledge of pharmaceuticals. So he went to this tribe, and he and his fellow white people had a very difficult time surviving in the jungle. But he found all these tribes, and they survived. And he was like, how did they do this? Well, they had this tremendous knowledge. And so he was watching the tribe, and they had made this plant mixture 
threw it into the water, and all the fish floated up, and they just picked out the ones they wanted. But then, all the fish came to just a few minutes later, and they swam away. So what they were doing were, was just throwing a perfect chemical cocktail into the water that stunned the fish, and then it was just like going to the grocery store, because you could pick out the ones you wanted. Sounds like electrofishing a little bit, when you zap the fish with high-voltage electricity, and they just pop up to the top. So who are we, uh, who are we talking to today, Justin? David Corden, author of Agenda for a New Economy, came up to UBC a few weeks ago, and I was fortunate enough to uh, be there and record the talk and, and host him here at University of British Columbia. Very interesting talk, and he goes into a lot of detail about where he came from in rural Washington State to work at Harvard Business School, to work in international development, and to realize that the solution to developing nations was not more development, but uh, that the development was actually what was causing the problems, and that the trends in all the developed nations were quite negative in, in terms of education, family, psychological health. Uh, and so as he realized all this, he really had to start looking upstream at problems. And as he looked further and further upstream at where the problems were coming from, it all centered on money, the way money's created, the way money's used, and uh, the way we think of money. And so that's the primary context for his talk today, which uh, you've edited together, Seth. And so um, I think it makes a really good follow-up to our last episode where Conrad was talking about uh, the way we use efficiency in, in the economy and how uh, he thinks the solution is for us to work less. All these people seem to be saying that we need to go upstream of the problem to fight it, that pushing against the waters downstream really have little to no effect on the situation, on changing the situation. To actually affect the problem, we need to go upstream of the problem, to realize where the source of the problem comes from and to go there to fight the source. And yet, every single solution that our society focuses on is almost always a downstream problem. Whether it's, oh no, we're polluting the climate, let's reduce our CO2 emissions. And so to do that, we'll install solar panels or whatever. But it's ignoring the fact that we have this extractive economy that is based on growth and that only along with growth are we using up more and more resources and that's what's killing the environment or destroying the earth or growing our ecological footprint. A tremendous thanks to the over a thousand downloads we've had of our podcast, which, you know, maybe in the grand scheme of things isn't that large of a number, but it's way more than I thought we'd ever have. And so uh, many thanks to all our listeners. And speaking of public conversation, we had our first voicemail last week, which was really exciting. That was very exciting. And anyone else who wants to leave a voicemail, please do. We'll have the number at the other end of this episode. For now, enjoy, kick back, and listen to David Corton. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, as Charles indicated, I you know I usually come to these events with a prepared text, and this is no exception. I've got it all uh, all written out. But as we were talking about the nature of the evening and the group, we sort of agreed that maybe I wouldn't do that. That I will introduce you to a little bit to me and to. 
some of the frameworks in the book, and our hope is to then move into more quickly into a conversation than what we had uh, been intending to do. And I think after my opening comments that maybe Charles and I will get into a dialogue around some of the questions he thinks might be interesting and then open it up to the group. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that you're all here because you are quite familiar with the fact that as a species, we are in deep trouble. Is everybody on board with that? <laughs> so I don't intend to get into a lot of detail and statistics about how bad our situation is. I assume you already know about that. I'm going to focus on trying to provide some frameworks to take us into a deeper understanding of why we're in that problem and what it means for what we need to do. And I'll warn you that my approach, my, my take on the situation, is that we have to change virtually everything. That we have to fundamentally reinvent our cultures and our institutions, at least particularly our modern cultures and our institutions, and particularly the institutions of the economy. Now I know this is part of a series and you're going to have another speaker who I gather is working on the premise that uh, we can fix all these problems with some uh, clever technologies. I, uh, I take strong exception to that, uh, uh, to that view. I mean, it's a nice idea if we could do it with technological fixes, but to me, if you really understand the nature of why things are going so badly wrong, it takes you into a recognition of how badly our institutional and cultural frameworks are serving us. Now, all of this can be terribly depressing, unless you put it in this context, that we humans are creation's experiment in reflective consciousness. We are part of a much deeper evolutionary process by which life has evolved toward ever greater complexity and consciousness. We are a species with a reflective consciousness that gives us a capacity to choose our future with conscious collective intent. You're of a generation that's grown up with the information technologies that allow us to come together as a species and to make decisions as a collective whole in a way that has never been possible before. And what advantage of drawing in a few older folks like myself is having lived through that transition we can see much more clearly the implications of what a profound shift this is that you folks, most of you folks, grew up with and take for granted. To understand where I'm coming from, I think it is necessary to understand a bit of my background. I grew up a little south of here, down in uh, the United States in the state of Washington, a town called Longview. Uh, you just go straight south about, I don't know, from here maybe 300 miles or so you come to Longview. A very, uh, a very white community, very non-culturally diverse. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a monoculture. The most, the most uh, exotic people that I knew was my aunt, who was a Catholic. <laughs> and there was a rumor that my grandmother voted Democratic occasionally. Anyhow, I assumed that's where I would spend my life. I went off to college to prepare to come back and run the family business. You know, one of the very few ways that uh, my formal education affected me was I happened to take a course in my senior year outside of my major field on modern revolution. I learned about these communist revolutions that were a threat to our American way of life, 
And that was one of these fundamental changes in life. I decided instead of going back to my hometown, I would spend my life uh, working overseas and in regions of Asia, Africa, Latin America, bringing to them the secrets of American business and economic success so they could become happy consumers like us and forget all this revolution nonsense. That was quite a dramatic shift. And of course, that threw me into a totally different life in which I was deeply immersed for 30 years of working in international development, living 21 years outside of, of my own country, immersed in the diversity of cultures of Africa, Latin America, and Asia on this mission to modernize and bring prosperity to the world. I'm kind of a slow learner. It took me something like 30 years to figure out that what we were trying to do was not only not working, but it was having disastrous consequences for most people. That, you know, a few people, of course, were getting very rich, but most people were getting deeper and deeper into desperation. We could see the deterioration in the environment, the forests and the, the fisheries and the rivers and the lakes. And I spent 15 years in Asia, which is a region that I particularly love because of the deep, rich culture and the traditions of, of strong family and community. You saw those cultures being torn apart, torn apart, families broken up, communities broken up. You know, I went, I went to business school, got an MBA and PhD from the Stanford Business School, taught for a time at the Harvard Business School. So I'm coming all at this all from a business school background, and very much an establishment background. And one of the things that I valued about my business school education was that we learned to think about organizational systems. Now, of course, in business school, and you know, this is a subject I taught at the Harvard Business School, um, but of course, what we're teaching is teaching the students how to organize a corporation. You know, organize the culture and the incentive systems, authority systems, information feedback, all the different aspects of the organization in order to shape the behavior of those people that worked in the organization to focus, keep focused on the bottom line and maximize the corporation's profits. Now, I was kind of in the field that, uh, that Charles was in, and many of us had this, uh, this idea that, uh, well, you can make people more productive if you can get them really working together effectively in teams, and that's really good for the people, and it's also good for the company because they can generate more profits as a result of that. Uh, that's a whole different story. But the key point here is that since I talk a lot about the economy, uh, a lot of people think of me as an economist, refer to me as an economist. It's actually not technically accurate. My field is organizational systems. And it's very key to understanding how I think about economic relationships because I'm not looking at pricing systems and so forth. I'm looking at institutions and culture and how those shape the behavior, not just of people in corporations, but in terms of shaping the behavior of whole societies. So it is a deeply systemic perspective. And out of my international work, I came to the point of, okay, let's figure out, you know, as I, as I began to realize what was happening in terms of the, of the devastation in the world, I came to realize the same things I was seeing in Asia and other places I work, the so-called underdeveloped countries, that those same things were playing out in those countries that we considered to be the models of development. 
Canada, United States, Europe, Japan, that they were all moving toward more and more people in desperation, increasing poverty, cultural breakdown, environmental destruction. So you begin to realize, wow, this is truly systemic. And you start looking at what does this tell us about how we are organizing as a species? How, as how we're organizing as modern societies? And what can we do about it? And it was out of that inquiry that led to, uh, to writing When Corporations Rule the World. That was the first cut at laying out my analysis of what's really going on with this global system and particularly the organization around these powerful institutions of global corporations that are designed to maximize financial profits at all costs. And I want to say a little bit more about money. You know, this is really interesting. This is, this is, you know, this is part, of, you know, part of what I came to realizing that absolutely foundational to understanding this whole system is money, is money. You know, back in 1992, I got together with a number of non-governmental organizational leaders in Asia. I had just moved from the Philippines back to the United States, but I, I went back to the Philippines for this, uh, for this little gathering, very small gathering. We spent 10 days together reflecting on the Asian development experience. And what did it tell us about what these civil society organizations and non-governmental organizations needed to do? And we started talking about the experience of development moving out and destroying communities and villages, colonizing the land, taking over the resources that people depended on for their livelihoods, and turning it into corporate property, and then essentially turning the people that used to live off of those resources into serfs working for corporations. A recreation of serfdom, of colonialism, of a pattern that I eventually realized has dominated human affairs for 5,000 years. But that's another big story. <laughs> but in terms of this, this meeting in the Philippines, in, uh, in uh, Baguio Mountain Resort, we began to get this image, this money. It's like money moving out across the countryside, absorbing and destroying life every place it touches. Have any of you ever seen that? This is a really old movie, but the, uh, the old horror movie, The Blob? You know, that was the image that came to mind, this undifferentiated ball of protoplasm. Whatever life it touches, it just absorbs into itself. And I thought, that's really curious. How could that be? What is this thing called money? What gives it this power? Isn't it just a number? How could it have a motive drive? How could it be inherently life-destructive and evil? That's my definition of evil, that which is destructive of life. And I struggled with this for days with the group when we talked about this. And eventually we realized money, of course, has no motive energy. The only energy is our human energy, our life energy that has become deflected and distorted and misdirected by our obsession with money. I've come to think of it almost as a cultural trance and it is so extraordinary as you think about it because it is nothing but a number created with an accounting entry. 
You know, I wrote the book When Corporations Rule the World, but the truth is, you ready for this? The accountants run the world. <laughs> the accountants run the world. I saw someplace that the, uh, you know, some of the highest paid business graduates in their first jobs are those that go into accounting with the Wall Street firms. And as you think about it, it makes perfect sense because all those games going on on Wall Street, they call you know, financial innovation is nothing but creative accounting. <laughs> you know, most of it fraudulent, mis, uh, misrepresentative. But that's where the money is in, uh, in playing these accounting games. So it makes a lot of sense that uh, accountants would be in great demand on Wall Street. Anyhow, you come back and you begin to think about money. Where does it come from? Who decides who gets it? And you think about, you know, we have moved over a very long period of time from societies that once had no money, no equivalent of money. It's also interesting, if you study biology and living systems, there is no equivalent of money in a natural system. But we've gone from societies where relationships were based purely on caring relationships or non-caring relations, if one or the other, but they were not mediated by money, to a situation where in modern societies, particularly right now, virtually everything we do as an individual depends on money. And more and more of our relationships are mediated by money, to the exclusion, in many instances, of caring. And yet we never step back and ask the question, wow, doesn't that give incredible power to those people who are in a position to create money and decide who gets it. Control that power and you control the society. Now I'd be willing to bet that this is an idea that none of you have heard in any of your classes in the university. Am I wrong? I certainly didn't learn about this in the university, which in itself is really interesting. It's really interesting. You know, where money moves, determines the fate of nations, determines who eats and who doesn't, who has a place of shelter, who has no place to go. You have enough money, you have access to everything. You have no money, you have access to virtually nothing in our modern society. And yet nowhere do we discuss it in these terms. This tells us something about the state of our society and including the state of our intellectual systems, uh, the state of economics as a discipline, and the state of our universities. In a field, I am the absence of this is always the case. Wherever I am, I am what is missing. When I walk, I part the air. And always, the air moves in to fill the spaces where my body's pain. We all have reasons for moving. I move to keep things whole.
But this is part of the part of the much larger conversation that we have to have to come to a deeper understanding of what's happening to our world. You know, very simple terms. You know, we're all familiar with the financial crash back the end of uh, 2008, which I gather didn't hit quite as hard here in Canada as it did in the United States, but I understand you also have felt the effects of it. Now you step back and you realize what that was really about was we structured our money system. You know, again, I, I don't want to presume to speak about Canada. I, I, I presume that it's fairly similar here. Back when I was growing up, most of our financial institutions in the United States were community-based. There were community banks that had no branches. It's one single office of a bank owned by people in the community takes deposits from the community, makes loans to businesses in the community like my family's business. The banker knows the people he's giving the money to, knows their reputation, knows their history, knows that the community depends on those businesses and you know they work things out. Community banks, mutual savings and loans, which are really cooperatives, credit unions, which are also cooperatives, which means they're, you know, they're organized as non-profit cooperatives. Could you imagine a money system based primarily on institutions that are not private for-profit, but are actually managed by and for the community? Now we have people in the United States on the screen, that's socialism. I don't know, I think of socialism as when the government controls everything. This, this is about community control. To me, cooperatives are not a socialist institution. Cooperatives are actually, to me, a, uh, uh, the, the ultimate manifestation of a market economy. You know, part of a market is private ownership. Well, a cooperative means everybody owns something, has an ownership share. That's, uh, that's a pretty good idea, as long as it's done equitably and rooted in community. Now, what happened through deregulation? You know, I mean, a piece of this financial system, of course, is I, I assume most of you realize that that most of our money is created by banks when they issue a loan. And that capacity resided in the community, and it meant that you had institutions in a community that if you had opportunities in your community to connect unutilized resources with unmet needs, to invest in real productive capacity in your community, responsive to things that the community wanted and needed, you essentially created your own credit with those financial institutions to finance those activities. Over time through deregulation, we saw consolidation of those banks, mergers and acquisitions. Many of the community institutions were, uh, were taken over and operated as private, uh, publicly traded corporations. As the system shifted, it moved from providing real financial services to the community to concentrating the control, the power to create and allocate money in the institutions of Wall Street, totally removed from the community, totally unconcerned with productive activity, with the social or environmental consequences of how the money was used or the businesses were run, but concentrated in institutions that were able to create money from nothing to pump up financial bubbles, to engage in speculation, to create loan pyramids where banks loan back and forth to each other, create fictitious assets which become uh, collateral for more lending and so forth, so that you get more and more what I call phantom wealth, 
accumulating in these hands of these institutions that are totally undemocratic, totally unaccountable to any human interest other than, quite frankly, not even the interest of their shareholders who might be you know, pensioners and so forth and pension funds that own, these, own some of these funds but predominantly to their own managers who are managing these institutions to maximize their own uh, bonuses. That's part of the perversion of what's happened. It's recognizing that money, you know, you know this is another part of our, of our illusion of the, uh, of the trance that we're in. We are conditioned to believe that money is wealth. And if you believe that money is wealth, it's very easy to believe that people who are creating money are creating wealth. Now, when this process is simply going on within these Wall Street institutions, there is no real wealth creation. It is simply a process of creating more and more of these accounting chits, which gives their holders more and more claim on the real resources of the rest of the societies, to say nothing of, of more and more control over our politicians who write the rules and then are directed to write the rules that further facilitate this process of fraud and corruption. So you begin to get a picture of why this, these institutional issues, issues of institutional design, how we really structure our economic institutions, how we structure our money system is extraordinarily significant to all the problems we see in society. Because if you understand the dynamics of this money system and how it plays out through global corporations and our other economic institutions, you understand where our financial system is inherently unstable, moves inevitably through cycles of boom and bust, currently is propped up solely by public subsidies, why that system creates an imperative for the larger economy, as we measure by GDP, to continuously expand, why that system inexorably derives, drives ever faster environmental destruction. Why every day more and more wealth concentrates in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Why our institutions are losing legitimacy. The social fabric is disintegrating and our political system is becoming ever more corrupt. Okay, so that's a pretty discouraging picture and I, I realize I've kind of probably leaving my notes, you know, I get a little deeper into some of these things. So at this point you're probably thinking, gee, so what's the answer? The answer starts with a conversation. It starts with a conversation to change the framing stories of our culture by which we understand the purpose of the economy, our human nature, the possibilities to design our economic institutions in a different way, by which we understand what we really value, understand our human nature. Are we truly just greedy individualistic? Or were we in fact, did we evolve to live in community? You know, and the answer to that's are pretty simple. I mean, you think about it. Are most of the people you know evil, violent, greedy, individualistic or do you have some friends that are really pretty decent folks who really care about the world who you can count on yeah that's nice isn't it 
And you know, that's the way most people are. That really is our human nature. And you know, the truth is, yeah, there are some really evil, angry, individualistic, greedy, untrustworthy, violent people in our world. You step back and you realize these are the psychologically disturbed. These are the people who are in deep trouble. These are people who need help. These are people who should perhaps be in some sort of mental institution rather than running our political organizations and our corporations. Maybe went a little further there than I should. <laughs> but that's part of waking up to the reality. It's part of changing the story. So this is so fascinating to me. The, the first step toward deep change is a new story. Talk to your friends about money, <laughs> about the money system, about money as a system of power. Talk to them about these questions of what is our true human nature? What is our possibility as a species to rediscover our true humanity? Rediscover what it means to be a healthy human being? Rediscover the fact that we evolved to live in community and in fact cannot survive outside of community and that from all the things we know from our studies of public health the stronger our communities the more equitable our societies the healthier people are physically and mentally the help happier they are the more democratic our societies the more creative people are this is a possibility this is what we can be Second, we create a new reality from the bottom up. Charles asked how many people are eating food out of their garden. You know, when I grew up, my grandparents had gardens and we raised chickens and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And then we kind of moved away from that, most of us. But now people are beginning to go back to that. One of the groups that I'm deeply involved in is the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And you have a have one, a network of uh, business alliance for local living economies here in Vancouver. This is an organization that's working with communities throughout Canada and the United States. Rebuilding our local economies based on local businesses. Rebuilding our local food systems, our local building systems, our local financial systems, our local information systems. Which is all about restoring our control over our economy and at the same time doing it in a way that is rebuilding the relationships of community. That's all about creating this new reality from the bottom up. The third critical element in the change strategy is change the rules. Ultimately, we've got to get back control of our politics. So we write the rules in ways that favor real democracy, real community control, more moving back toward more local self-reliant economies that are engaged in real investment, creating real wealth. In contrast to the rules that we have now that generally favor the ever greater concentration of economic power in financial institutions that are simply engaged in creating phantom wealth to increase their control over the resources of the rest of the society. Now this change is happening, the awakening is happening, it is all happening at a blinding rate. Uh, another of my activities is uh, is Yes Magazine. I don't know, how many of you are familiar with Yes Magazine? Which we published down on Bainbridge Island, Puget Sound. Um, you know, we're about, yesmagazine.org, take a note of that, because if you're, 
If you're ever feeling a little hopeless and a little glum, go to our website or subscribe to the magazine and it's just filled with the stories of the people who are creating this new reality and doing it on, a, a, on an increasingly significant scale. This is not marginal activity anymore. This is the creation of the new mainstream, but you don't read about it in the conventional media. There is hope. To me, it is extraordinarily exciting. We, as I, as I briefly mentioned, we've been organizing around dominator hierarchies for some 5,000 years. If you look at the earliest societies, they were built around community, they were built around connection to the earth, they were built around a deep spirituality. Many of, the, many of those who study this earlier period believe that they were based generally on gender, uh, gender equality, that they were largely nonviolent. But then some 5,000 years ago, we started to, we moved into an era of empire and we started to create these dominator systems and we started to divide ourselves into dominator pyramids with a few people on top, most people on the bottom, which then puts us all into a position of competition for the privileged positions, and it makes a huge difference whether you're on the top or the bottom. And then that plays out in sexism and racism, classism, all the other, all the other isms. But we're now beginning to develop the communications capability to communicate directly with one another, to break through these illusions, to share the truth with one another, and to begin to organize from the bottom to create this new reality, to take back our lives, and to carry forward what I think of as the great democratic experiment of moving to a position of true popular sovereignty. We economic hitmen have managed to create the world's first truly global empire, and it's basically a secret empire. We do it many ways, but, but, but principally, uh, we identify a country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, range a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sisters. The money never actually goes to the country, it goes to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in that country that help a few very wealthy people but don't benefit the majority of the people who are too poor to buy electricity or have cars to drive on the highways and yet they're left holding a huge debt that they can't repay so we go back at some point and say you know you can't pay your debts give us a pound of flesh sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies vote with us on the next critical UN vote allow us to build a military base in your backyard something along these lines and when we fail the jackals go in and either overthrow or assassinate these leaders. And if the jackals fail, as they did in, in, in Iraq, then we send in the military. I don't think the failure is capitalism. I think it's a specific kind of capitalism that we've developed. We've created what I consider a mutant viral form of capitalism. And this mutant form of capitalism, which I think is really a predatory form of capitalism, has created an extremely unstable, unsustainable, unjust, and, and very, very dangerous world. Uh, I've met a lot of terrorists. I've interviewed them for books. I've never met one who wanted to be a terrorist. They're desperate people. If we want to get rid of terrorism, we must get rid of the root causes, that cancer that is destroying uh, our whole system. Because I think it's really important that we understand today we cannot have homeland security unless we understand that the whole planet is our homeland. Okay, I've rambled on enough. I'm going to stop there and turn to Charles. And I don't know if you have any questions.
questions for uh, the next step in the conversation, and then we'll we'll open it up to your uh, your comments and questions. If you're sitting with my daughters, 14 and 11, and they ask you the question, where does money come from, and who decides who gets it, mm -hmm. what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say that it is... <clears throat> I haven't quite thought about how you explain this to a 14-year-old, but a lot of our 14-year-olds are pretty smart. It essentially comes when a bank makes a loan. Now, if you really get into the mechanics of it, it is, gets really complicated, but it's really like the, the game with the, the shell and the pea. <laughs> you can't tell where the pea is because there's so much complicated accounting, you, your brain just sort of gets tied up in knots. But essentially, what, you know, it, it starts out actually with our central banks in the United States, the Federal Reserve, you know, this is one of the things that's not, that's very little discussed. You know, I'm, I'm sure you all heard that in the United States, the, uh, the U.S. Treasury put something like $750 billion into a bank bailout. What is not mentioned is that the Federal Reserve has put trillions of dollars into the banks, loaning it to them at essentially 0% interest. Now, it's interesting. This is, uh, like, Need to come back to your daughter's question. <laughs> <laughs> My 14-year-old's tuned out by now. I'm sorry? My 14-year-old's tuned out by now. Yeah, I'm sure she has. <laughs> okay. Let me reframe the question. What yes. would you want her to know about money? I would want her to know that it is created from nothing simply by an accounting entry. When, when you take out a loan from a bank, the banker essentially makes two accounting entries records the liability of the bank, which is the money, you know, you take out a loan, $10,000 for down payment on your house or whatever. So the banker opens an account in your name and writes in it $10,000. That's a liability you can draw against the bank's account for that money. <coughs> Makes a second entry, which is for $10,000, which is the bank's asset, which is your promise to repay. Two simple accounting entries, and new money appears from nowhere. Now, when I studied economics, I was told that, you know, you put your money into the bank, and I come into the bank to get a loan, and the bank loans me your money. Well, that's a nice story, but you, in fact, still have access to your money, as I have access to the new loan. So that loan is effectively new money. Now you get into all kinds of things about reserve requirements and asset ratios and so forth, but that's all part of the smoke and mirrors. This is the kind of basic thing where that money comes from. And if the bank needs more reserve requirements, it can go to the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank of Canada and borrow. That money is created by the central bank simply making an accounting, those same accounting entries which it is free to do at will without any public accountability or oversight. So that's where it comes from. Then the bankers are deciding who gets it by their decisions as to who they give loans to. Now, an interesting piece of this is it used to be that we gave loans primarily for productive activity. And then the people who provided their labor to those productive activities were paid with that money a living wage that they could live on. 
Now, as we move toward globalizing the economy and a whole set of dynamics that have been pushing down wages relative to the cost of living, more and more people find that they are forced to borrow to cover their current consumption, not for investment, but to put their kids in school and put food on the table. And so you do that by borrowing against your credit card at usurious interest rates or by taking out a new mortgage on your house to mortgage the, the, the inflation on your house to monetize that so you can pay for your grocery bill. Now, I, I just realized, of course, uh, I'm at a university. How many, uh, how many students here have student loans and are well, not as many as I expected? But uh, you, of course, know that uh, you're going to spend much of the rest of your life paying off those loans. You know, we used to call this debt slavery. You know, anytime you get in a position of borrowing for current consumption, you are moving into a condition of debt slavery. You know, it's a very effective thing because, you know, when I graduated from college, I did not graduate with any debts. It was very uncommon to graduate with debts in those days, which meant I could focus on what job do I really want? What do I want to do with my life rather than how can I, you know, what can I do to get enough money to pay off my debts at the same time as I support myself? So many of you are going to be leaving college in bonded servitude to the system. It's very clever. You caught yourself uh, as you were talking, um, suggesting maybe you'd gone too far in referring to our political and corporate leaders as evil. No, psychotic. Psychotic. <laughs> I, I think you did use the word evil as well. I use the word evil in relation to the money system. That which is destructive to life. That which is, which is destructive to life. And uh, so, you, know, so you may know the biblical so, verse, no man can serve two masters, God or mammon. God to me is the spirit of life. Mammon is money and the worship of money. It nails it. <laughs> well, let me, let me step back uh, and be clear that not all people in corporations or all por corporate leaders are, are psychopaths. But a psychopath is a person who, who, who has no capacity for conscience, cannot truly accept moral responsibility for their actions, and cannot see a situation through the eyes of another. Now one really interesting case, um, you know, there are books written about, you may recall the name George W. Bush, who happened to be the President of the United States for quite some time. Um, you know, there were books by psychiatrists doing a clinical analysis of his personality profile who were, uh, you know, essentially convinced that he was, he fit the profile of a psychopath. Now, um, you know, when you get statements from the CEO of Goldman Sachs about, you know, we're just doing God's work. Well, I think that's a pretty strong indicator of somebody who is totally psychologically out of touch with the nature of what they're doing. So there's a difference then between those, you're suggesting a difference between those who are out of touch, psychopaths, and those who are in a system that actually causes a kind of behavior that may not be psycho psychopathic yes. behavior. Yeah. But, and, and I mean, this is, this is something I struggle with. I mean, yeah. I have a mortgage to pay, I have kids' braces to you know, pay for, I've got yep. dance classes to pay for, and I am out there in the system generating money yeah. to pay for those things. Yeah. What's my choice? 
Yeah, I mean, that that's a very key point in terms of being trapped in the system. Now, there's the other piece of it, which is also being trapped in the culture. The and distinction being? The distinction being, um, you know, and this, this is a piece that is very tricky in terms of trying to determine which individuals have a potential to change and which ones are so psychologically damaged that there's very little that can be done. You know, we are conditioned by our culture to the idea that we best serve society by pursuing our individual financial gain or greed. You know, I'm sure you've all been taught this. And if you accepted it, it doesn't mean you're a psychopath. It just means that you are embedded in the culture that you swim in. Where that is the case, people who are enculturated to that set of beliefs, if you can break the cultural trance, if you can expose them to a different reality where they step back and say, oh my goodness, <laughs> I've been living a lie, they can snap out of it very quickly. In the book, you speak to sins made virtues by the system. Yeah. Could you say a little <laughs> bit more about that? Because I think that's a, that's a big aha for those of you when you read the book. Yeah. This, this gets to You'll see on the, on the top of the back cover, it says, Greed is not a virtue. Sharing is not a sin. That's the chapter of one of, my, uh, of, one of the chapters in this new edition. It's fascinating to me as you think about it. If any of you are familiar with the, uh, you know, the seven deadly sins, I can never remember what they are, but I've got the chart of them in here. But anyhow, greed is one of the sins. But if you go down the list of, of sins as laid out by the, you know, that element of the, of, the, of the Christian religion, you realize that our capitalist institutions, our Wall Street capitalist institutions, have created a culture in which we are conditioned to believe that each of the sins is in fact a virtue. And that correspondingly each of the corresponding seven virtues is a sin. You know, the idea that if, um, you know, that, that Milton Friedman was very explicit about, that if as a, you know, as a business leader you are not maximizing your profits, but you're sharing some of the wealth, that that's a sin. But this is part, this is part of what is so stunning when you begin to break it down like this and realize what our cultural conditioning has done what our culture is teaching us, and how it has turned the moral universe on its head. I go into these descriptions of the underlying dynamics because we are not taught about them and we rarely discuss them in, in our discourse. I go through them not to discourage people, which I realize is a real, <laughs> is a real problem, but because we have to understand them. Once we understand them, we can recognize it does not have to be this way. That there really is an alternative. And that that alternative is within our capacity that is actually inherent in our true human nature. And that we can change. You know, this relates to a story. When, <clears throat> when, I first, when, when Corporations Rule the World first came out in 1995, I was really stunned by the number of people who came up to me and said, I loved your book, it gave me such a sense of hope. And my, my reaction at the time was to look at them in disbelief. It gave you a sense of hope? Did you really read it? 
and said it really depressed me to write it, to see how deep our problems are. He said, oh no, I got all that, I know, you know. But what you helped me do is understand it, to name it. And once I've done that, I realize it doesn't have to be this way, we can change it. And that is a source of hope. And my source of hope is the recognition that people all over the world are in fact working to change these things. And that that is bubbling up ever, ever faster. And part of my own sense of our possibility comes out of my experience in the, you know, what sometimes called the anti-globalization movement, which really is the, is the resistance against corporate globalization and the misuse of trade agreements and so forth to consolidate corporate power. When Corporations Rule the World came out in 1995, at the same time I was part of a group called the International Forum on Globalization, which was just about 40 or 50 people scattered around the world uh, who were all trying to figure out what's going on with these trade agreements, what is this globalization thing, Where does, what, what's all this corporate downsizing, the, the, the outrageous CEO pay, and we began to put together our analysis of how that really worked. And we began to go out and spread the word together. And we held a big teach-in in in New York City in November 1995 that brought in 1,500 people from around Canada, the United States, and Mexico uh, from progressive organizations that were just trying to understand these issues. And they caught on to the framework. And they took it out, and they carried that conversation forward And four years later, we had this massive demonstration in Seattle, which brought the WTO to a halt, and then emboldened demonstrations all around the world, and essentially brought the multilateral trade agreement process to a halt. That happened within a blink of an eye, historically, energized by a very few people, but changing the story. You know, it's interesting, if you're lying, if you're telling a lie, you have to keep repeating it. You've got to have real media power. But if you're telling the truth, people get it. Most people get it instantly. And you don't have to keep repeating it. But we do have to bring it out and bring it into the conversation so that we know that other people recognize it too and that we can work together for change. Yeah, so I'm not... The best I can interpret is that uh, you know, you're noting that we have lost sight of our reality as living beings. And of course, part of part of this change that we're going through, the positive transformation, is rediscovering our connection to life. The way I think about about creation is that it is, it is an evolution of, of intelligence. To me, the whole of uh, this is a much bigger set of issues. Uh, you know, one of my other books is Great Turning from Empire to Earth Community. And I look at these very deep questions of our, of, of our history in both a historical but an evolutionary perspective. Now, part of our, you know, part of, part of the issue here is that our universities are part of the problem. You know, the fact that you do not discuss in the university most of the things I've been talking about is one indication of that. Everything that's important to us in our modern society, everything we need to address to redirect ourselves, reinvent ourselves, deals with systems, inherently interdisciplinary. Our universities are organized into ever smaller, tighter, disciplinary, subdisciplinary silos, so that most of what we discuss in the university is irrelevant. 
We also get caught up in ideology. We got caught up in economic ideology that, uh, that pervades much of our academia. But we've also gotten caught up in a scientific ideology that presumes that only the material is real, that life is an accidental outcome of material complexity, and that consciousness is an illusion, which strips life of all possible meaning. Now, these assumptions are quite useful in terms of scientific method and pushing the incremental advances in scientific understanding, but if you really take those to be our underlying assumptions by which we try to understand ourselves and our place in creation, um, they're horrendously limiting and ultimately destructive because they play into this sense of disconnection from life. I think of the whole process of creation that what we call the Big Bang was a sense of it all started from a great consciousness or intelligence that was bursting to know itself through a process of becoming. And it burst forth, and it has been in a process of becoming ever since, exploring its possibilities through what we know as creation. Creating ever, learning to create ever more complex physical structures and ultimately ever more complex biological structures, living structures, and ever more intelligent and self-aware capabilities. And we, we are certainly not, we are a part of that process. The idea that evolution has come to an end, I think is ridiculous. Uh, we could set it back by billions of years by our own actions here on this planet. Um, but it, it is, it is, an, to me, an eternal process. Uh, and part of, you know, part of our waking up, part of our, part of our actualizing our ultimate potential is recognizing that we are part of this creating process and that our reflective consciousness, our capacity for reflective consciousness, allows us to make an extraordinary contribution to this cosmic learning process. All the detail of how it works, I have no idea. But it's part of the conversation we need to have. It means really opening our minds to possibilities that we have been cut off from because of our insistence on a very mechanistic view of reality. Um, I don't know if that's <laughs> response to your question and I just, or not. I, I, I just want to comment. I shared with David as we were driving out here. I had no idea why, but uh, a couple days before I knew I was going to be here, I, I rewatched The Matrix. You see that movie? And the choice we have to be conscious and reflectively conscious of the kinds of questions that David's raising or be numb to them. I, I'm, just, I'm just struck by that's essentially the message of that film. Yeah, which is so, you know, so yeah. We have uh, two, Wake up. three, and four. <laughs> two is up here. Well, I guess this is maybe an interesting question. Uh, because uh, it, it seems to me you talk about alternatives. And I'm wondering, uh, do we really need to have crisis situations before we actually explore those alternatives? Because in the matrix, uh, uh, Neo explored the alternative simply because he wasn't satisfied, he wasn't fully happy. Yeah. But the vast majority of people continued, you know, living in the unreal world of the Matrix. Uh, so isn't it 
only until we have you know, real crises like the 2008 financial meltdown, where people start looking for uh, alternatives, and which means that we're actually need to wait for many more crises to occur before the world truly changes. To me, it's, uh, the question is, are we an intelligent species? Are we an, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, there is evidence to support that position. If we're an intelligent species, we should be able to anticipate where we are heading. Recognize it is not where we want to go, and utilize the capacities that we now have that literally did not exist before 1990, which was only 20 years ago, to make collective decisions as a species to change our ways. Now, it's interesting, you mentioned the crisis, and you know, people often say that. Won't have things have to get worse before people wake up? Now, it actually triggered, you know, the, I thought, well, I wrote, the, I wrote the first edition of this book immediately after the financial crash. And it's, it's kind of an extraordinary story in a way because, you know, any, any of you who've ever written or published a book know it's a process that usually takes a number of years. And, and just once you've got it to the publisher, it can take six months to a year before the publisher actually gets it out. The first edition of this from the very inception of the publisher sent me an email and said, I think you need to write a book about this, to the launch of the book on Wall Street was two months. And part of my premise was, wow, we have had this ultimate crash. This is the moment for change. Virtually nothing that has been done by our political leaders or our corporate leaders since the crash does anything to actually correct the problem or to prevent another crash other than keep pumping in money from the Federal Reserve. The real need is not another crisis, it's a conversation. And one of the things I realized when I was writing the second edition was the reason there was no constructive action in response to the first crash was that we had not had the necessary conversation that there was no conversation out there, there was no framework in place to frame a different set of actions. Now, for example, think of what we could have done. You know, it's, it's very simple. The government should have taken over those big banks, then restructured them, broken them up, relaunched them as, as local, broken them up into locally owned community banks to essentially recreate the local financial services system that we used to have. Then if you took all that money that you put into the bailouts and put it into what we, the United States refer to as the stimulus, which is money that goes into funding essential projects at the local level to put people to work, producing, you know, retrofitting our homes, producing solar energy capabilities of fixing up our schools, rebuilding uh, public transportation systems and all that kind of stuff, that money would then be flowing into these local banks and recirculating in the local economy. We have done none of that. But we've also never had a conversation that said, hey, wouldn't that be a way to deal with this? So I suggest that rather than waiting around for another crisis, we start a conversation. 
really interesting thing is, that's something every one of us can contribute to. Well, they're happening, a lot of them are happening within the, within the framework of people doing, of rebuilding their local food systems, of <coughs> developing local investment systems, all of many, many projects about alternative energy and retrofitting our buildings. You know, I'm actually up here to speak to a group of the, the Cascadia Green Building Council, which is, you know, this is a group, these are groups from the building industry that have been... Uh, you know, moving forward the LEED standards, the green building standards to increase energy efficiency, livability, and so forth. These conversations are actually happening everywhere. What the piece that's lacking is this, this discussion of the kind of underlying system framework. And, uh, you know, I don't, it's, I've, <laughs> I'm not really in the business of selling books, except the book does provide the framework, and if you go to the website, we have, uh, you know, we have discussion guides to, to support discussions, and uh, you know, for all my focus on the on the uh, the negative analysis, my primary activities are, you know, my role as board chair of Yes Magazine, uh, my role on the board of the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, creating these new alternatives, and then I'm also co-chair of a group called the the uh, New Economy Working Group, um, which is working to build awareness of these frameworks. Uh, and part of what we're going to be launching is a, uh, a, a very broad popular education uh, program through uh, youth organizations, uh, uh, faith groups, and hopefully labor unions. We can find any that are ready to grapple with these issues. Um, you know, again, just in terms of crisis, you know, I, I felt that uh, it's really fortunate that of the you know the complete collapses, the first one was a financial collapse because that's just about money, you know, and you easily fix it. Since as we know, the money you just create an accounting entry. Uh, but you know, once you have social collapse, that can take generations to recover, and environmental collapses from many human perspective forever. Um, you know, we, we do need to we do need to take advantage of. Uh, of every crisis we can, but it's the conversation. If we don't have the conversation, we don't have the framework. Question about externalized costs. We have developed an economic system where the massive rewards go to those that have sufficient economic and political power to pass their costs off of the society while privatizing the gains. Now, this happens this is possible because of the enormous concentration of economic power in a few corporations that are accountable only to absentee owners. The corporations that are publicly traded, where their ownership shares are traded in public markets. Most of them shares held by 
public institutions of one way, one sort of another, which completely delinks it from the individual. Most of us who have investments in Wall Street have them through a mutual fund or a retirement fund or an insurance fund or something of the sort. We don't even know what companies we own. All we know is what is the profit return. And so we get very focused on that quite naturally. But it's a, it's a system that is designed to create a disconnect between who gets the rewards and who pays the price. Now, that's all part of this, you know, the reason for this restructuring of economies around what I call living enterprises and living ownership. Living enterprises are human scale enterprises and businesses who are owned by their workers or by their customers, people who live in the community who have a direct living relationship to the enterprise. And the enterprise is designed, structured, managed to serve the interests of the community. In the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, we talk about living returns, which means that if you own a business in your community, your benefit comes not simply from the financial return, but also from the benefits of living in a healthy community with a healthy environment. So that's a total living return. So that's, that's part of the restructuring. And as you do that, you naturally internalize the costs in a very natural, systemic way. Um, starting at preschool with education, there's a whole bunch of, uh, okay, there's essentially two sets of questions. One, one centers on media and one centers on, uh, on education, and then there's the technical things, okay. Um, we tend to get very discouraged by the corporate control of media, and with good reason. I find it appalling. Uh, you know, that's why I spent a lot of my time working on independent media like, uh, like yes. But here, think about this historically. And this, again, is part of you know, the experience that people of my generation have lived through. Think about the independence movement in India. Gandhi did not have access to an Indian press or Indian radio, and yet, you know, the media was controlled essentially by the British, and yet that independence movement brought down the, col the colonial control of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. It happens through informal modes of communication which are very powerful. You think about the fall of the Soviet Union, which had a press far more controlled than our press here in North America. But again, the regime, lost the regime in Eastern Europe lost credibility through the informal communication networks. You know, one of the most dramatic examples of all was South Africa and apartheid, and the fall of apartheid. We as citizens have ways to communicate and get organized that go far beyond the capabilities of control of, uh, of you know, kind of official media. And with the internet, we have far more of this capability than we've ever had before as citizens. 
Now, to me, one of the most extraordinary things that has ever happened in the world, I get hazy on the numbers, it was, uh, it was, I think it was, was it February 2003, February 15, 2003? Remember the day that some 15 to 30 million people around the world mobilized on the same day in resistance against the Iraq War? What do you think about that? Millions of people in virtually every locality around the world organizing around one issue on a single day. And I said, well, but we didn't stop the war. Okay, Empire's been in place for 5,000 years. You're not going to stop, stop it with one demonstration. But the communications capacity, our ability to communicate across race, religion, geographical boundaries, class, is extraordinary to express a common set of values. Now, part of this process of creating the new reality is driven by people all around the world sharing their experiences, sharing their learning, which creates a, literally a global social learning process. Discovering ways to live together in ways that we either never knew before or that we've forgotten. The potential of that is extraordinary. Let me, let me say the education went to last. In terms of, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking, I, you know, I do not, I'm not really familiar with the book of the, of the next speaker in the series, but uh, from, what, uh, from what you told me at lunch, uh, you know, he's focused on big, big technology fix, on nuclear energy, on bioengineering, and so forth. Now it's interesting, is there an intersect here? Um, at one level, there's no question to me that as we, for me, that as we, as we work on these systems and the restructuring of the system, we also have to make full use of our of beneficial technologies. So I'm not a, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not against technology. But I do believe that we have to make much more intelligent choices about our technologies than we have in the past. I don't know, there may be a place for nuclear fusion if we ever figure it out. Uh, most nuclear energy, I think, is just a devastating disaster. It is part, it, it plays into the very thing of focusing on, well, let's solve our immediate problem right now and forget about the future. Let somebody else worry about the, uh, the waste. With biotechnology, you know, there's some very useful advances in biology, but most of the biotech is about advancing corporate profits, increasing control, uh, monopoly control of our food supplies. And one of the things that, that jumped into my mind as you were laying that out is a really critical distinction. We have generally used our technological capacities to extend our capacity to dominate, control, and suppress nature. Our future depends on learning to live in harmony and partnership with the biosphere. Did you just make a note on you made a note on that? Yeah. You know, that's part of how I think about our economic reframing. That we need to create local economies that function in balance 
and harmony in partnership with their local ecosystems. And actually managing that relationship in ways that enhance the productivity, the, the regenerative capacity of the local ecosystem. And so we need to be very conscious of what technologies extend our capacity to work in partnership with nature in contrast to our established tendency to dominate nature. And I don't know whether your next speaker is, is addressing that question or not. Most of the folks that talk about technological fixes are, are stuck in the old paradigm, and I, you know, I don't think of it as what well. we need to melt these two. Uh, they're often fundamentally different, uh, different frames. Now, in terms of education, I totally agree that we need to uh, we need to be transforming our educational systems at all levels. You know, not only on the kindergarten level, but also in terms of adult education. It's, you know, we all need to be, in a sense, re-educated. And this is this is one of the great tragedies of our time. Our our current educational system is geared to preparing people, giving them the skills, the ideas, the frameworks, the knowledge they need to succeed in and serve the existing institutional system. Which means you're all being prepared to succeed in institutions that are either going to destroy themselves of their own weight, or that if we're going to survive, we basically need to get rid of or replace or fundamentally restructure. Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to worry about the people that don't care. One of the things I've learned is, uh, you know, there are so many people that care, so many people who are eager to learn. Uh, that's where we start. That's where I start. Uh, you don't start with the worst case. People often say, you know, you spend all your time talking to the choir. So yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we need to learn to sing together. Choir needs practice. We need to all sing the same music. Not in lockstep. You know, it's like a gospel choir. <laughs> jazz choir, um, but you know, we need to be working from a generally common framework of what, of what we're about. Um, and this has to take place at all levels because what we really need to be preparing people to do, particularly our young people, you, is to be the navigators of this transition, to be the architects of our new institutions, our new systems, new culture, new society which means a very different kind of education that is fundamentally multidisciplinary and system-oriented. It means, you know, I, I often look back, and I mentioned that I, you know, I got an MBA and PhD from Stanford Business School, and I look back on my own experience. I truly believe my true education started the night after I went through graduation to get my PhD degree. I happened, you know, my, my field was organization psychology. That night, my wife and I went to Esalen and engaged in a gestalt uh, uh, psychological training group. I learned more about psychology of myself in that week than I learned in all the, uh, all the university courses I took. From there, most of what I've learned, most of what I'm teaching, what I'm sharing with you, came out of the experience of learning from the real world shaping my own education, engaging in deep conversations and reflection with other colleagues who are also relating to the real world. 
And I would suggest that if our universities are going to be relevant, that one of the things we need to do is take down the walls. You know, go find these communities that are working on rebuilding their local food systems, that are trying to go through energy conservation uh, and conversion. Set up centers in these communities with students and faculty working to learn what's working, what's not working, how does the technology fit with the, the, the social structure, what kind of communication techniques work. How do we disseminate these things? How do we put the pieces together with the, the food system, the energy system, the financing system, the marketing systems? And how do we feed it back into our educational system? How do, how do we then bring this into our kindergartens and our preschools and these new frames? Now, this is a totally different concept of, of education. But it also relates to my own experience that the most powerful learning in society is what we call social learning. It's learning that grows out of social context as we learn from working together to solve real-world problems to create new organizational and community capacities. That's where most of my real learning has come from. And that's what we need to bring into. We need, we need to create education, or rethink our educational system to support that kind of process. You know, in terms of some of our disciplines, I would quite literally shut down the departments of economics. I would replace them with departments of ecology, and I would put some ecological economists in those departments, but there would be a sub-department of the ecology department, which is really trying to understand the dynamics of ecological systems. I would focus biology on new biology, on those biologists uh, who are really trying to understand life on its own terms. So the insight for me came from, there's a, a wonderful woman biologist, Dr. Maywan Howell, who had a huge influence on me. And she said, David, she said, you know, most, uh, most biologists take a living cell, grind it up to study its chemical composition, and they think they're learning something about life. She studies living cells to understand their dynamics, their processes of energy and information exchange, trying to understand how that works and how life integrally works in community. And it's a whole, it's a whole understanding that once you get into it, you realize life can only exist in community. No individual living organism can exist on its own by the very nature of the way life manages energy. It's extraordinary. It's another one of those things, though, that is, you know, it draws from understandings of conventional science but goes so far beyond it to begin to give us frameworks that we can use to really understand our world and understand where we need to go. I think with that we, we need to thank you for your attention and I wish you well in carrying these conversations forward. I think what you know what's happening here in this university with this uh, with this series opening up this conversation on ideas that otherwise maybe don't get into a university. Um, you know, this could be part of this transformation of our educational systems. And it appears you guys are right on the frontiers of that. So congratulations. And that ends another episode of the Extra Environmentalist Podcast. If you're still there, we're still here too. Justin, what do you think about that podcast? David Corton made a lot of really interesting points in a university environment. He, he made a good point 
that these are not the things that we discuss in our classes. These are not the things that we, we talk about when it comes to solutions to global problems. And I always wonder why that is. And to me, you know, I've been tremendously benefited by the university system and I've had a really valuable experience. But some part of me can't help but say that a lot of it's a distraction for a lot of people. The whole process of going to university, going massively in debt in the U.S. Uh, to go to university. But even just the time spent to go to university quite often ends up being a fair amount of distraction from the real game that's being played. I thought it was pretty interesting when he talked about how his education really began after he started his PhD program, after his whole undergraduate program, and he started his PhD, and that's when his education really began. Yeah, he went through who knows how many years of schooling to go through elementary school and uh, then go all the way towards a PhD. And then the day he stopped his PhD is when he really started learning. Um, and it was interesting that he said uh, he went to Esalen, uh, where people like uh, Terrence McKenna gave a lot of talks. And I know that we've uh, spoken before offline, Seth, about how um, you were saying that you felt your education began when you started listening to Terrence talks. and. Uh, some of the other things on the psychedelic salon and start researching these things for yourself. It's very interesting that we never ever touch on a lot of the topics that David talked about in universities, or at least in my time as undergraduate. I would like to have known these things back when I was in high school. It would have been really nice to, to have introduced these concepts and to start thinking about these types of things back when I was a small guy instead of now that I've graduated from school. So that wraps up this episode. Um, we've got a lot of really interesting stuff in the backlogs, so who knows what our next episode will be, whether it will be an interview or another talk that I've recorded, or maybe Seth and I just sit down and talk about life philosophies for an hour. It's always a mixed bag when you come to the extra environmentalist, what you're going to get on any given day. I would say if you've been enjoying the music we've been playing and Seth's slick editing has been worming its way into your ears and embedding itself into your brain so that way you can't remove our voices from your mind and, until it haunts your very unconscious, check out the show notes. Put links to all the music. It's all uh, downloaded from the many music blogs that I go through on a regular basis and then it's hand-picked, washed, and selected. Seth uh, shines it up and puts it in the market for you. Also, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to tell us about it, if you like The Extra Environmentalist and you want to let us know, we have a phone number that you can come leave us a voicemail on. That number is 919-701-EXTRA, and that is X-T-R-A, so you can just dial those numbers in on your touchtone phone. Get us and leave us a great message that we will probably try to incorporate in some way into our next show. Also, you can leave us email, a regular email, at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. Again, that's podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And we would love to hear from you. And I must say, I've been absolutely shocked at uh, the amount of feedback, uh, the number of emails um, that we've been getting because we're only on episode five now. And, uh, you know, I thought maybe some people would listen by the time we got to episode 50. But I'm just looking at the podcast statistics right now, and we've had well over 800 downloads in October alone. 
and uh, well over a thousand total downloads. So that's unique downloads. So that's really exciting. That's viral marketing at its finest. That's you guys out there sending it to your friends and sending it to your loved ones and promoting it for us, which is the best way to promote something. Yeah, that's you ripping it and placing it on a CD and then uh, putting that CD in your local Walmart's uh, play loop and then it's just broadcast it out and then thrown down upon the consumerist masses and as they pick up that cheap Chinese made good they hear the voice of Seth Moser Katz in their ears and suddenly they realize that they're going to buy it anyways but at least they'll feel guilty about it at least they feel guilty <laughs> exactly alright cool so I guess uh, that's a good point to end things out and I guess we'll let the music take us away Take us away, music. Seth, what's what's your plan once slaughter gets here? Well, I guess I could just get my shotgun out and barricade myself into this little apartment that I live in.